Well, we're going to begin chapter 8 in our confession tonight, and uh, we have been uh, obviously working our way through this, and we spent several weeks, I don't even remember how many weeks now, on on God's covenant, I think it was three, and um, now we're going to see the covenant mediator that comes, and so we want to uh, be able to take some time on this. This Excuse me, chapter 7 was only three paragraphs, and of course this article has ten, and largely sums up the person and the work of Christ. We have to understand his person before we can fully understand the work of Christ, and so um, my goal is to take three times on this, three meetings. We're only going to get through the first two paragraphs uh, tonight. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Did God leave all mankind to perish in a state of sin and misery? And the answer is, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a Redeemer. And so as we think about a mediator, and just think about it as the secular format or whatever, what, what is the role of a mediator? A mediator. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Intercede to bring parties together. Okay, to bring parties together, right? And so that's, that's very good. And so a mediator is one who intervenes between two parties um, especially for the purpose of effecting reconciliation. And so you have a husband and wife going through a separation. They agree, the court will often mandate that they meet with a mediator to determine the custody of the children. And so the, the, that person's objective is to mediate, to bring about reconciliation in, a, in a, an agreement. And so uh, civil matters, legal matters as well, both parties purpose to mediate, or arbitration, as it's called, to resolve a dispute. In fact, more and more, um, even doctor's offices have you sign stuff when you go in there that, that when you're not going to slap them with a lawsuit, that you're, you're agreeing, that you're signing to say that you will, you will go through an arbitration rather than a lawsuit. And God has filed suit against mankind and we are defendants in God's court. So God provides the mediator. Um, of course, these human comparisons can only go so far as we consider Jesus Christ as the mediator. Um, we can pr- quickly point out that God is the offended party, not we. We're not the offended ones. God is the offended one. And he provides uh, the mediator. Um, the, uh, the word... Uh, means to intervene between two, either in order to make or to restore peace and fellowship. So let's look at a couple of verses. Um, can you get Galatians three nineteen and twenty? And if somebody can get First Timothy two five. Okay, got that one. And I'll read Hebrews nine fifteen when we get there. So let's read these scriptures. Yeah, the first one. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Galatians 3, 19 to 20. 
Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, for God is one. Okay, good. And then First uh, Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Yeah, we all know that verse. And then Hebrews, we um, read this, uh, most of chapter 9 or second half of chapter 9 last time in dealing with God's covenant because as we stated, the word covenant occurs more in the book of Hebrews than it does in the whole rest of the Bible. But this is one of those verses, verse 15 for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And so God interposes, as it were, that mediator offers some kind of guarantee. The word in Romans 8, 7 says, by nature we were at enmity with God. We were estranged from him. And of course the teaching today that God loves all and, and so forth. You know, God is at enmity with sinners who refuse to repent. And they will be judged in eternity in hell. Men by nature do not love God's person or his attributes. When it comes to thinking about God being omniscient and knowing all things, and when it comes to thinking about God's holiness, when you hear descriptions such as Revelation 1, where Christ has eyes, as it were, as a flame of fire that pierces below the layers of facade that we can put up, and he really sees the thoughts and intentions of our heart, Man, sinful man, <laughs> has not been reconciled to God, hates that. <laughs> it's, it goes completely against his nature. It provokes fallen humanity's animosity towards their creator, and thus enmity with God is a good uh, term to use. And of course we know Jesus Christ is the one that bridges that gap. When we are broken, when God humbles us, gives us a gift of repentance, we're regenerated, we now are restored to fellowship with God through Christ. And Christ is the only way we can be restored uh, to God and, and, and take that enmity away. Of course, as we'll see, he's fully God and fully human, so the two natures of Christ. And this was absolutely necessary for his... Um, sacrifice on the cross to be effectual okay both had to be there and then um, mediator necessarily is not an office it's more a function it's something that Christ does but as we'll see the confession brings out the offices of Christ and what are those teaching uh, high priest prophet prophet prophet, priest, and king. He's reading it. <laughs> You're reading it to me. Yeah, prophet, priest, and king. Right. And so those are the offices of Christ. And, um, and just by way of introduction, the, we have the ten paragraphs here. Um, the first eight follow pretty closely to the Westminster Confession of Faith with some additions here and there and phrases. 
But 9 and 10, the last two, which we'll look at in a few weeks from now, um, actually bring from the first London Confession, from the 1644 over, and, and they're helpful as well. And so, as I said, the person and the work of Christ are uh, both um, expounded upon, and it, it tends to go back and forth. 2, 3, 7, and 9 are the person of Christ. 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10 is the work of Christ. And um, so let's go ahead and read um, the first paragraph. And of course, you know, we know that the first paragraph of each of the articles in our confession is, tends to be a summary of the doctrine of a, as, of, as a whole. <laughs> so who would like to read that for us? Okay. <clears throat> it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So what a great statement <laughs> of who Christ is. I mean, just right there. First of all, it, it, we see in the first three words, it pleased God. And of course, we've seen this phrase a couple times already. The pleasure of God, it pleased God. God is the initiator. And uh, those three words tell us that the work of redemption comes from the mere good pleasure of God alone. It's not something that's owed to us or any such thing. And then, of course, his eternal purpose, Christ's work of mediation, was ordained from all eternity. And, of course, we saw glimpses of this in the previous chapters as, you know, pointing towards that. And then to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. Those words make us think of election and predestination. Through election, God brings about his plan of redemption. And... Of course, according, according to the covenant, um, and, uh, you know, the, it's a reflection back to the previous uh, chapter 7 that we looked at. And, of course, to be a mediator between God and man. Um, think of the, the verses that speak of the great distance between God and man. And then we've talked about that when it came to the decrees of God. Back in chapter 3, how God had to decree um, to elect some unto eternal life. Uh, in fact, the confession even uses that language, that the, the distance between God and man being so great. Um, and so, in chapter 7 and paragraph 1, the distance between God and the creature is so great that also, although reasonable creatures do owe him obedience unto him as their creator yet they could never have attained the reward of life. But by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had pleased, had been pleased to express by way of covenant. And so, also prophet, priest, and king. So there you have it again. A prophet, of course, is God's, it's God's, he's God's spokesman. Thus saith the Lord. 
And of course, the work of priest, in a sense, was to be a mediator, to offer intercessory prayers for the people. They spoke to God on behalf of the people. And of course, Israel's kings functioned as mediators as well. If you think the righteous king knew that he was the Lord's representative, and so as he would rule the people, he would mediate to rule uh, the rule of God to the people. You think of King Josiah, for example, that reinstituted, discovered the law, and, and destroyed our, all the idols, and brought back the feast. And, and that king served, in a sense, as a mediator to bring the rule of God to the people, so that they would know what is necessary and required of them in obedience. So. And of course, in a sense, there's, yeah, I mean, it, you know, and there's overlap here, right? Because a priestly prophet, one that is interceding and uh, on behalf of the people, uh, a kingly priest, and so forth. And so in the Old Testament, um, well, well, Paul says that there's one mediator between God and man. Of course, we know that, First Timothy 2.5. We read that earlier. Of course, he's speaking of the par excellence mediator, Jesus Christ. He's utterly unique, utterly distinct from all previous priests, all the high priests that served all those years, every king that has ever ruled. He's completely unique, uh, altogether different than the prophets uh, that had gone before. And of course, this mediator had to be truly God and truly man. Now, why is that important? To open it up for some discussion. So you have both natures? Yes. Because well, because to pay the sins of man, there has to be a man. Pay, um, transgression, then no man could uh, bear that. Um, the suffering of no man could bear all the sins of mankind, but it has to be a divine nature that would cover the extent of all time's sin. Okay, and. Why is that? There's one thing I'm trying to point out. You're, you're exactly right yeah, with what you right said. But that sacrifice had to be spotless Perfect. and sinless. Mm -hmm. And all men are fallen by nature. And so the, that man had to be the God-man, the divine man, because that's the only sinless, spotless. One other ideas on this? Thoughts? Greetings, Robin. <laughs> so only one mediator is fully qualified to bring about the ultimate goal of mediation and our redemption. John Calvin, of course, is the one that helped systematize and organize doctrine in his institutes. And I believe it was first uh, Calvin who set forth that threefold distinction of prophet, priest, and king, or at least organize it in such a way that these are the offices of Christ, though, um, I mean, obviously that's, theologians have kn known that before, but to set it clearly in an organized method um, came from him. I like the way um, Paul Washer does, like, that little imagery of just what that, to be that substitute, what that, mm. the difference looked like, and just looking at love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and there's like never has any man like like fully 
loved and honored God as he deserves a single second, but <laughs> Jesus did that every single second of his entire life. So you just see that the big, that kind of shows an example of that big gap, or that yeah. contrast for him being like, you know, kind of a glimpse of what, what does that spotless look like? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, we're going to get to it also, I think, in the next, you know, it's the Trinity's reference in paragraph two. But, and then to take that, to even think back in our finite brains and to think even before, uh, during the covenant of um, redemption, the whole plan of creating the world, creating man and redeeming man and all of that, and you think of the, the fellowship that the Trinity has amongst the individual members of the Trinity and, and how sweet and how pure and how free from anything that it's, you know, we're so cumbered with sin, even in our best second, like you said, we are so deplorably ruined and lost, you know, and, uh, and to think of that beautiful divine fellowship amongst the Trinity itself. Well, let's look at, um, I want to look at some verses and kind of elaborate on the prophet, priest, and king. Uh, can somebody get Acts 3.22? Volunteer? Somebody? Okay, got it. And then Hebrews 5, 5, and 6. Okay. And Psalm 2, 6, Vadim, if you can get that one. And let's just look. Uh, a prophet, of course, is one who what? Speaks forth. Speaks forth the word. And then we remember we're talking about the par excellence prophet who is the word. <laughs> In the beginning was the word, the word's with God. So John 1.1 1, 1, and then Acts 3.22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him whatever, whatever he tells you. Yeah, so there you have them. We know that's from Deuteronomy and um, a, a quote there. And then the priest, of course, he is, well, let's, let's read Hebrews 5, 5 and 6 first. Steve, you got that? So also Christ did not regard himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he said also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So two very important things that were stated there about Christ's priestly office. You take the second one first, that Christ's reign is forever. There's no successor, right? So he is the final high priest. But also... He is what? Appointed. He's appointed. He's both sacrifice. He, he, he's the sacrifice and offering and the priest. <laughs> so priests would offer sacrifices upon the altar. He is both within himself. Yes. And of course, Hebrews uses that language elsewhere. And then, of course, king, the reign of historical kings, we know, very, very limited. In some cases, I just... Um, we're beginning Second Kings now, but just finished First Kings. In some cases, you know, a couple months there, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, they're very, very limited. But Christ's reign is forever. Psalm two and verse six. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy 
Holy Hill. <laughs> so on Zion, he is the final king. So in all of these, Christ is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And of course, the Father established each office for our redemption. Of course, if we, so we look on here, so mediator between God and man, prophet, priest, and king. Notice the next little phrase, head and savior of his church and heir of all things. So Ephesians, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse 22 and 23, well, really 20 to 20 to 23, we should probably just read all of that. Do you want to get that, Chris? Sure. <coughs> Which he brought about in Christ. When, is that the first part? Yes. Okay. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that is that is an absolute <laughs> profound statement, and just looking at you know the, the way Paul expresses it, um, first of all, the context of the resurrection, of course, raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places and then where in what position far above rule and authority power dominion um, and then he's put all things this is the repetition all things in subjection under his feet and it's given him as head over all things to the church and then of course which is the body the fullness of him who fills all in all so it's not just that Jesus Christ founded the church during his earthly ministry year, right? But he owns the church. He has authority over the church. And of course, you know, the word ecclesia, it means the called out ones. And um, in some cases, the called out ones by means of a herald. And so we are the ones that are called out of the darkness and the depravity and the, the, the chains of our sin of this world. We are called out and gathered together under the headship of Christ. In fact, that phrase in 22 is very important. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And so he indeed is the senior pastor, so to speak, um, par excellence. Uh, he is heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2 says in these last days he has spoken to us in his son whom he has appointed and there it is again, heir of all things, to whom also he made the world. And, you know, again, it's like each of these phrases we could take you know, an extended amount of time on. But then notice the judge of the world. So he's mediator between God and man, prophet, priest, and king. He's the head and the savior of the church. And then the heir of all things, and then also the judge of the world. And Brian, do you have a, can you look up Acts 17, 30 and 31? And see, Jamil, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1. 
the idea that he is the judge of the world. 1730 and 31? Yes. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Yeah, so it's that God has appointed us, and <laughs> we see it again, right, that he will be the judge. I mean, he is the judge. And then 2 Timothy 4, 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of, Jesus, and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So, the judge of the living and the dead. So, he is the one um, who will judge. And of course, one needs not go further than to just read the Gospel of Matthew and the way some of those parables are structured and the fact that I mean, it, it is just completely implied that, that he is the judge. And then, of course, the, um, this paragraph ends with the actions of his mediation. We see it there at the end. Unto whom he did for all eternity give a people to be his seed, and be by him in time, notice the end time, redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. And so you have there, um, and really the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism brings out um, each of those uh, in a series of questions between 30 and 35. And so this paragraph obviously is an excellent summary to what Christ uh, has done um, the, the appointed role that he has and the subsequent paragraphs will unpack this in much fuller and greater detail and um, that's why we're not I mean, real easy just to kind of <laughs> take a really long time on this alone but those are all themes that will come back up and so in the covenantal context and remember as we just learned about the covenant um, you have the idea that there's a plan from the eternity past. Theologians call that the pactum salutis. Okay, so that's just a fancy Latin phrase that this was a, something that, that, you know, in regards to salvation was planned. And then the historia salutis in the middle, which is, is what happens in history, right? He's the, the head of the church, the heir of all things, who will judge. And then the orda salutis, where you have this idea of the order of salvation redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. So you have those three things kind of touched on already there. Well, let's look at the next um, paragraph, paragraph two, and who would like to read this one? It's a long one. <laughs> <laughs> no volunteers, huh? Okay. Oh. Okay. Okay. Just the second paragraph? Yes, just <laughs> yeah, that would be quite enough. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upheld and governed all things he had made, did when the fullness of time was uh, was come take upon his man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, 
being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman <coughs> of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only only mediator between God and man. Excellent. So you can see that there's <laughs> a lot yeah. of theology uh, right here uh, alone. And first of all, it touches on the pre-incarnate Christ, of course, uh, Christ was with God and is God, John 1.1, 1, 1. in Christ's high priestly prayer. He says, and now glorify um, me together with yourself, Father, and the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so um, the pre-incarnate Christ, and then, of course, this incarnation, which is actually such a profound mystery, uh, you know, as we were talking about earlier. You know, the Trinity and perfect harmony and deity and glory. And how does, a, you know, the second person of the Holy Trinity become a man and come to the sinful earth? It's, it's, it's really quite amazing. Uh, Galatians 4.4 4 says, uh, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law. And... Of course, he became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, that means the tabernacle among us. So um, so this puts redemption in the realm of history as well. And then this idea of fullness, the fullness of time, is not just a glass filled to the brim, but filled to overflowing. All history really points to that one event when the second person of the Trinity comes in uh, comes to this world and is born and you know, I would say the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection those are the key events right which were only 33 years apart but through the, the history of the world everything points to that that happened before that and everything now even points back to that I mean that's why we're here men from all different backgrounds from different countries from you know all of that Gathered tribes. together, huh? Different tribes. Different tribes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, uh, you know, gathered together with the common bond of Christ. I have a question about the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, so well, we, we understand that there's only one mediator between God and man. And we understand that at a point, point, point in time, he took flesh. But so... There was appearance of uh, God appeared to Abraham or to Moses, so that is a, is that a pre-incarnate Christ, right? So are those uh, manifestations of deity? Is what you're what you're saying? Yeah, we, <laughs> when I, those episodes of like Moses being face to face, or Abraham actually, when Paul retakes that, says that God appeared to Abraham, but we know that nobody ever seen the Father. So when they actually appeared to him as face to face, that was a Christ? Most think that, um, and you know, let's open it up to see what what people. Well, the, um, I don't remember the reference, but uh, was it 
who was it that said that I saw the Lord or Yahweh high lifted up, uh, which has the Isaiah. Isaiah, and then the that same reference is drawn from, I think, like John twelve, where um, it's actually saying that that's, that was Christ. Exactly. Good point. Yeah, I, th- I think it's John eleven, but it's it's either eleven or twelve, but. Yeah, so the the mystery as far as who that was that Isaiah saw, it is 12. Um, Yeah, verse 40, 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So, yeah, there you have, this is where you want a biblical theology where you're able to kind of, see this because um, that okay well the New Testament informs us and expounds on the old and so that that was the glory of Christ um, I think those manifestations of deity um, uh, was Christ but I don't I don't think that it was I mean it's same Christ is God form? because it, huh? same physical you mean no I don't I'm not saying that at all I, I, we well, don't know that it's not physically it's we don't know if it's the. We don't know what form. Same, right. The Bible's silent on it, right? The angel that appears to Abraham, I think, and uh, and uh, again, I think of David. Uh, there's, I, I think it's uh, somewhere I read in the commentary that could be referring to the pre-incarnate Christ because that angel actually accepted the worship, right. which the angel normally will not do. Mm-hmm. Right. The angel will stop them from worshiping. In John one or Revelation one, John um, or the angel says, "I, you know, don't don't do that. No, get, no, up, get up, get up. Yeah, you. right." And but so, so when the angels accept that worship, obviously we know that yeah. that's the precursor yeah. Christ. Yeah. yeah, we have of Moses. Uh, I, I'm not looking for it. It was like Exodus twenty four or twenty five. They was actually face to face. That's the scripture. Yeah, referred that. So I, we have an idea of this appearance as being a physical appearance. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, sometimes that that language, because in 34, he's asking to see God, and God says, hide in the cleft of a rock, and I'll let you see my backside, you know, and so, you know, you've got to kind of compare the scripture with scripture, and and, and, and before the face of, it can also mean in the presence of, and so it's, you know, but, you know, (laughs) I don't know. How we're gonna? We don't want to go down that road too far. Um, I, I think if the Lord wants us to, to know His face, you know, we have a picture now. <laughs> well, we have a yeah, the beautiful picture of Scripture. No, my question was just that the fact that did He may have taken flesh before He actually took flesh through the Virgin Mary? He maybe oh. so in a couple of episodes He I took see. flesh before yeah. the actual taking flesh through you know His actual life. I think those would be, I mean, I would put those in theophanies is what it's called, where it's, but I don't think that it's, yeah, I'm not sure, I mean, there's something really distinct about the incarnation, yeah, I mean, it's, that's in and out of incarnation, and you know what I mean, I mean, if you accepted that, that it would go in and out, in and out, out. there's something about this incarnation that's um, distinct, (laughs) you know, after his resurrection, you know, he looked the same. Obviously, he's not in the physical body because he's going through doors now. But they touched him, though, so he didn't see the body. 
So Hebrews 2 um, speaks uh, in verse 14. (laughs) Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So you see here that he took, notice it's very clear, flesh and blood, and he himself likewise also partook of the same. And so clearly speaking of the incarnation. Verse 16 is very profound. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. And then verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. For what? So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, he he had to have the same composition of flesh and blood and be a true human being in order for him to satisfy God's wrath. Yeah, Romans 5, right? That's good. Um, and then Romans 9, 5. Whose are our fathers, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. So that's a verse that actually speaks to his deity as well. And very clearly, God, um, God-blessed forever. Amen. And so Christ in the flesh being truly um, God. And then his humiliation we know from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. He existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made, notice, in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so the result is that we have full deity and complete humanity, and yet in one single person. And that's that's the profound thing. All the same attributes given to God are said of Christ. So his full deity, very clearly um, speaking of, of who he is, and scripture is very direct. In fact, John 1 1, I just read Romans 9 5, um, John 20 28, uh, my Lord and my God, you know, those types of things. Um, Hodge, in volume two of his systematic theology, says this. <clears throat> Do I want to read this? <laughs> Maybe I'll skip that for now. I might come back to it. So his true humanity with a historic redemptive note, God's purpose from eternity was fulfilled at the exact time. All the essential properties of human nature, yet without sin. And, um, you know, you think of all, what's the language that's used here? The common, the essential properties and the common 
infirmities. And we think of how would we, do you think you would recognize Jesus if you met him in the first century and shook hands with him or had a meal or gave him a holy kiss or whatever? Would you recognize him? You mean from what we see today? No, I'm <laughs> saying without, <laughs> if you, without the New Testament and would you recognize him? No. No. Because he, he just, he was a man of normal, uh, he just oh, looked like other men. And so... He's not even attractive, though. <laughs> right. There's, right. There's nothing that, that we should take note Unless of him. Isaiah 53 yeah. is yeah. very, very clear in a couple different places. 53 and verse 2, um, and I believe the end of 52. In fact, we can just, why don't we just turn there real quick. It's worth noting. that we would be attracted to him and um, why is he forsaken of man yeah there's, there's, there's nothing that we would have you know oh you know there it is it's tattooed on his forehead or something that he's the son of God no he would have been a man if you shook hands with him you would feel the calluses on his hand you know from being a carpenter uh, it would have he would be a man that would get thirsty and be tired, just like us, um, sensitive to cold and heat, uh, even um, mentally um, like that, and yet without sin. It's true humanity, and we could spend some time looking at these verses, but um, the very fact that he would be a man, Micah 5.2, Isaiah 7.14, uh, speak of that. Of course, the designation of a man, Acts 2 and verse 22. Let's look at that. Acts 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, putting him to death. But God raised him from the dead. Notice the emphasis. This man, this man. In 1731, Brian read it earlier, that, that he will be the judge through a man, Christ Jesus, right? And so the emphasis of him being a man. Jesus spoke of himself as being a man. In fact, he uses the phrase son of man 80 times in the Gospels. Of course, he had the appearance of a man, the body of a man, and um, even um, the soul of a man, Matthew 26. So, I mean, it's the very fact that he was tempted in the wilderness, as Steve said, he, he succeeded as the second Adam, where Adam failed when it came to being tested. 
and he had real human limitations um, of hunger and thirst, and those come out. And so, true humanity, true deity, wedded together, and um, and it's very, very important that that is believed and clung to. The hypostatic union speak of the two natures of Christ in one person. Now, there was a couple of heresies that came out of the 5th century um, that would speak against this. Uh, Nestorius separated the two natures of Christ. Uh, it's one of them. And then the Eutychian heresy said that Christ had one single nature and it was a mixture of divine and human. So that the human and um, that the human and divine natures were mixed together and equal to 100% versus God being 100% man and 100% deity in one person. You see what I'm saying? So they'd say 50-50 kind of equals 100 because it's, you know, but it's the two natures of Christ but in one man. R.C. Sproul uh, speaks of the Chalcedon Creed, which was 451 A.D. He says, Chalcedon established the boundaries beyond which we dare not tread in our speculations, lest we plunge ourselves into serious heresy. And if we move away from Chalcedon in either direction, exaggerating either the deity or the humanity of Christ at the expense of the other, we will fall into heresy. So the very nature that Austin, you should work. So the very so I like what he said there that, that the theologians of that day that the great minds came together to address this and we're, we need to be very careful not to go to one extreme or to the other. Um, let's see let me see if I think I've got a quote here yeah uh, from this creed. Of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word. And so uh, when the confession uses without conversion, that's speaking against that Eutychian, which said that Christ had one nature, a mixture of, of the two, and um, so forth. So let us be seek to be grounded in our theology, these I mean, what we covered tonight, a proper understanding of just these two paragraphs will guard us from thousands of heresies that we could easily go down. And so to have a proper understanding of the, the deity, the humanity of Christ, his offices, uh, what he has come to do, uh, the virgin birth, all of those things um, have been attacked throughout church history. We need to obviously be students of the Bible. The confession is, is helpful uh, for us in, in laying it out in a systematic way. 
but again, we don't, we don't come to conclusions based on the Bible, not what man-made documents say. And it's very important that we remain humble as we learn and submit ourselves to the scriptures. And remember we talked about progressive revelation. Um, remember uh, last time in paragraph 3 of chapter 7, uh, this covenant revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament, and of course is founded on the eternal transaction between God the Father. But anyway, the idea of that through ever since that very first promise in Genesis 3.15, and then by farther steps to the full discovery as it's completed in the New Testament, and I would say the new covenant, uh, the covenant of grace is really fulfilled in the new covenant. And so to remain humble as we study and to appreciate what who Christ is, this is the Savior that we will worship for all eternity, and to be reminded of all that he has fulfilled, of all how the word points to him, should only fuel our affection and our love for our dear Savior. Any final comments and thoughts? Okay.